0: All right. Well, do you remember we and by the way I know there are some that weren't here last time, so I'll just do a little review. We're doing a discussion about the law and the gospel, and the reason why I think it's appropriate is because we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount really makes us focus on how is the Mosaic Covenant related to the new covenant and vice versa. And so I'm going to show you the five categories that we're looking at, or actually we only looked at three of them last week. We'll finish the other two. So let's do a little review for those of you that weren't here and for those of you who may just need a review. The first question we asked was, why can't the Mosaic Law bring about righteousness? And if you recall, one of the key verses that we looked at was Romans 7, verse 11. Now, I'm going to cite that again. Romans 7, 11 answers this question, why can't the Mosaic Law bring about righteousness? It says, this is the Apostle Paul, for sin, that's the sin nature of us, Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So remember that term "aforeme" or affirmé is the term for taking opportunity. And the analogy we made last week was that of a beachhead. So think of the Allies when they make their invasion on June 6, 1944, D-Day. They establish a beachhead which is the base of operations then to launch the rest of the offensive into Europe. What Paul is saying is that our sin nature used the Mosaic law as a beachhead to further increase sin in our lives. Now again, the problem isn't the law. Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is our sin nature. So remember the analogy, I made the analogy of oil and water, they don't mix. Neither does our sin nature with the law of Moses. It's not the law of Moses problem, it's our sin nature. But far from quenching our sin nature, the Mosaic law further incites it. That's what the Apostle Paul is shockingly teaching in Romans chapter 7. And I say shockingly because I don't think that I ever heard that prior to studying it for myself some years ago. When's the last time you heard a message where the Mosaic law incites people to greater sin? But the reason it's important is what Paul wants you to know is that in Christ and in the new covenant, by the power of the Spirit, you've been set free from that. That's why you have to know. You have to know how desperate your problem was if you do know how good you have it now under the new covenant. Okay, so number two... We ask the question, what is the ultimate purpose for the Mosaic law? And remember, we saw that in Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20 gives us the ultimate answer for that. I'll just scroll down to that. I think I have it memorized, but so I don't gaff it. Paul said this, Romans 3.20, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show us our need. And to remember, I said that if the greater Jews who had the patriarchs, the covenants, and the promises, if they couldn't become righteous through the Mosaic law, how much less we Gentiles who are far off. That's implied in Paul's argument because one verse earlier he said in verse 19 of Romans 3 that the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. Again, I want to hit this one more time for review. Who was under the law? The Jews were, right? Well, then how can every mouth maybe, be closed? So if the Jews are under the law, how does the law close the mouth of the Gentiles as well? Well, there's an implied greater to lesser argument in Paul's mind. Remember, the Jews would often argue from greater to lesser or from lesser to greater. And implicit in Paul's argument, remember he's just shown us in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And so the issue with the Gentiles is they cannot live up to what the Jews had, namely the patriarchs, the promises, and the covenants. In other words, if the Jews were so privileged and they had the law and they can't earn righteousness, well, the Gentiles aren't going to fare any better. So just as Adam is depicted as our first representative, The Israelites, in some sense, are another representative. They fail, and therefore it shows the rest of us would fail as well. How did the Israelites fare, by the way, in the wilderness for 40 years? Not so good. What does Jesus do in 40 days in the wilderness? He succeeds. He's the faithful son that no Gentile nor Israelite could ever be. That's one of the purposes of him going to the wilderness. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Okay, so number three, what effect did Jesus' first coming have on the Mosaic Law? And one of the passages I had you turn to in that, recall Romans 10.4. Remember 10.4, good buddy. 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. And we wrestled with what the term end meant. Remember teleos? We talked about teleos meaning the goal, but it also can mean Termination. We talked about the teleological argument. That's the argument that proves the existence of God because it presupposes a designer. Design presupposes a designer. In other words, teleos for teleological means goal. Something looks like it had a goal in mind. If you saw Coca-Cola, drink Coca-Cola written in the sand, you don't say, well, my, my goodness, look at what the waves did. You say, no, someone intelligent had to write that. Well, our DNA is far more complex than drink Coca-Cola. So therefore, that design in our DNA presupposes a designer. That's the term teleos. So in Romans 10.4, the term that we're wrestling with is, what does Paul mean that he's the end of the law? And I think it's right to say that, yes, Jesus is the goal. He's what it all pointed to. We learn that in Matthew 5.17. Jesus did not come to abolish but to fulfill. But because he is the fulfillment of the law, He's also the termination of it. You don't go back to what Christ has abrogated and fulfilled. When I say abrogated, because in passages like Hebrews 10:13, or excuse me, 8:13, we see that the Old covenant has been made obsolete. All right, So the answer then is, what effect did Jesus' first coming have on the Mosaic law? Is he fulfilled it and terminated it? And so we don't go back to it. So now that's where we had left off. Last week, let's go on to our fourth question. The fourth question is If the law of Moses can't save, can it sanctify? And I will open that up to comment or question. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Can it sanctify you? Can we be justified by Christ and the new covenant in order to go back to Moses to be sanctified? And by the way, the reason I ask this is this was the view that John Kelvin had. This is the view of the Reformed tradition in what's called the third use of the law. Can you define that a little bit the third use? Yeah, so John Calvin believed that in the third use of the law, and I can't remember the order of the first and second, but I think the first use of the law is to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that God uses it, and I would say amen to that. But in the third use of the law, he claims that the law of Moses can be used for the believer to bring us to righteousness, Now, the problem with that is it depends what he means by that. If he means the law is scripture, I would say amen. But if he means the law is a binding legal code, we would have to say no. Okay, does that make sense? So, let me tell you how this practically impacted this congregation. Some years ago, I'm guessing it was probably six years ago, there was a faction that had grown up that said, hey, Eric and Bob, you guys are not teaching us the Mosaic Law. Therefore, we're not being sanctified. You're you know, shirking your responsibility. You need to pound us with the law. Well, we had to respond to that and to say, no, that's not true. We are not going to bring you under the law of Moses. And again, I mentioned the shirt that Bob and I were given. We had done a lot of podcast on this issue. <laughs> and the shirt says, I was not justified by Jesus, which sounds very heretical until you read the back. If I turn around, it would say, in order to be sanctified by Moses. Are you with me? I do. I should wear it at a church picnic sometime. I will do that. But let me give you some passages that prove the point. The first thing, though, I want to talk about is what is sanctification? Because notice the question. Oops, I don't have my pointer pulled up. If the law of Moses can't save, can it sanctify? I don't really like using that term sanctify. I use it because it's used so much in Christendom. But I prefer the term transformation. Let me explain briefly why. Why? Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1-2. I want to give you a little purview of what sanctified means and how it's used typically in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1-2, we'll start there. 1 Corinthians 1-2. Now, as you're turning there, what I'm going to claim is that the term sanctified, typically, whether it sanctifies, sanctified, sanctifying, has to do with the work of Christ setting us apart once and for all, for salvation. The term hagiato, which is the Greek verb for sanctified, means to be set apart. So in a real sense, you and I as believers were set apart from all eternity to be in Christ. And that wasn't something we chose. It was something that God did for us graciously through his own sovereign will. So notice the language, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Paul says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Let's ask the question in 1 Corinthians 1-2, who's doing the sanctifying? Notice it says, to those who have been sanctified. It's a perfect passive participle. The passive implies... An outside agent has done this, namely God. Amen. So let me explain the difference between the passive the, the passive idea and the active voice. The passive voice and the active voice. If I'm playing baseball, an active voice is I'm the subject and I hit the ball. And I hit the ball, I'm the subject hitting the ball. But in the passive voice, the ball hits me. I'm being acted upon. So in this verbal construction in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, it's actually a participle, which is like a verbal adjective. Notice that we are being sanctified, or have been sanctified rather, and it's by God. That's the implication. So the idea is that if if we are here, let's say this is the world, and we're here, the world, we were in the world, but we were sanctified and we were taken out. We were set apart, that's it. That's what Paul means by that. So what we have done in Christendom is we've taken that term and we said that's something that we do. Well, the majority of the cases in the New Testament is what God has done once and for all in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't instances. I think there's one or two where sanctified could be, doing, could be something that we do. But the vast majority of the instances of its usage, 99% of it is all what God has done. Let me show you another example that's very clear. Acts 26.18, if you would turn back, Uh, to Acts 26, 18. This is Paul giving his defense before Agrippa, recounting Jesus Christ's words to him. So this is Acts 26, 18. Acts 26, verse 18. So again, Paul's giving his defense before Agrippa, and it recounts Jesus Christ's words that he had given to Paul as Paul was being commissioned. So notice here, this is, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm breaking into the middle of Jesus' sentence here, but Jesus says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that's repentance, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So notice that, again, the been sanctified, have been sanctified, that's a perfect passive participle. Again, the idea is that, yes, it's by faith, but who gave us the faith? God did. Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless a father draws him. So we were sanctified in Christ or set apart. And again, this is an act of God. So do you see, again, it's not something that we're doing. It's something that God did for us. Um, let's turn ahead to 1 Corinthians 6.11. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Eric.
1: Yeah, I noticed, too, that these are all in the past tense. Maybe I'm just repeating what you said. Exactly right. In other words, it's an accomplished thing. It's not, you
0: know, when I was raised in the Lutheran church, we talked about sanctification as we're we're growing and, you know, becoming more godly as we go along, you know. And that's more like the transformed by the renewing of the mind that you're going to be talking about. So this is an accomplished fact period. Yes. That's years. what I want everyone to see. Exactly. So we can be clear on our terminology. We want to be very persnickety when it comes to the terminology that we use because we want to be precise in what we mean by things. So absolutely. So,
1: so it's me... just, it's
0: positional. Oh, I'm then. We're talking about positional. I yes. mean, you're, you're the positional in the world or you're positional in Christ Jesus. That's it. Exactly. So Think of that positional concept, we are positionally with Christ, and that's what baptism symbolizes. So when in Romans 6 it says that we are buried with him in baptism, we don't say, hey, I'm really buried physically? Well, no, we obviously know it's symbolic, that we are positionally with Christ. So just as he died and is raised to the newness of life because we are with him, that's true for us. So, you're absolutely right, and that's something that God does. Let me explain a little bit about the Greek language, and I won't get too nerdy, but we in English use past, present, and future, and that's how we think. We did something in the past, I ran to the store, or present, I'm running to the store, or future, I'm going to run to the store. So, we use past, present, and future. Now, they have that in Greek, but Greek adds a nuance, it's called aspect. It's called an aspectual language. And what's so ingenious about it, and I think this is why Alexander the Great invented it with others in Greece, because it's so precise. They can not only say something happened in the past, present, or future, but they can give you a hint as to whether that action is ongoing or whether its effect is always with you. And so let me explain the, the significance of the perfect tense. Oftentimes, people will look at the perfect tense as something that merely happened in the past because we use to translate it in English, have been sanctified. But let me explain the significance of the perfect tense. The significance of it is it is something certainly that happened in the past, but it's called perfect because it was perfectly completed. But the emphasis is that its effect is always with you to, to the present day. So the reason why that's so significant with being sanctified is it's always with you, as it were. There's a continuing significance of having been sanctified. That's the idea inherent to the perfect tense. Yes,
1: joy. So does that go both ways? So is that how the Old Testament saints were sanctified?
0: Yes. Okay. Amen. Well said. Yeah, good question. Yes. The the work of God graciously in salvation has always been the same yesterday, today and forever. And we know that uh, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him his righteousness. That's Genesis 15:6. Paul labors that point in Romans chapter 4. Think about Jesus says in John 8:56. Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. And so you say, well, how did he see his day? Well, I think he led him outside and had him count the stars. And so when he believed God and was credited in his righteousness, I think the second person of the Trinity was there who led him outside. So he trusted in Christ. He looked forward to the cross. You and I trust in Christ. Look back to the cross. But it's one faith, one Savior, one re- Yes, exactly. That's how we should think of it. Okay, so the reason I'm asking this question, I won't go any further, but I want you to see that sanctified typically is something that God does. So a better term would be, if the law of Moses can't save, can it transform you? And just as Joy was mentioning, or some others, uh, Eric, Romans twelve two says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The term that's used for transformed is actually metamorpho, which has to do with a metamorphosis. So think about it. We were in our unregenerate state, an ugly caterpillar. Well, they're actually kind of, <laughs> they're cute little fuzzy guys and, as far as I'm concerned, but they're not a beautiful butterfly. The idea is that we're going to have a metamorphosis to a beautiful butterfly, right? That's the idea. so we're going to have a, renewed mind so the question then is can we be transformed by the law of moses well let's look at the answer to that question in galatians chapter 3 verses 2 through 3 please turn your bibles there and i want to show you a verse that you want to have in your hip pocket the rest of your life or your back pocket galatians 3 verses 2 through 3 because this succinctly answers that question galatians chapter 3 verses 2 through 3 now, remember, who is Paul addressing? He's addressing Judaizers, those who wanted to go back and bring others with them back to the Mosaic Law. And so, listen to what Paul says. Galatians 3.2, we'll start there. Paul says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's stop there. That question is a rhetorical question Meaning, it demands one answer. And it's obvious. It was obviously by faith. So the question is, did they receive the Holy Spirit by works or was it by faith? Well, it was by faith. So now notice with that in mind, so remember, how did they receive the Spirit? By faith, faith alone. Verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, by faith, are you now trying to be perfected By the flesh. Now, notice the term perfected there. It comes from epitolao. Remember the idea of teleos, the idea of perfection or reaching a goal? Well, you have that idea, that verb used, but with a prefix added to it, epa. Okay? So the idea is, are you now trying to be transformed in your life by going back to the law? Is that your idea? That's what Paul is asking them, and that's a bad idea. Why? Because they had the Spirit by faith. And so think about it. What's the old saying when you go to the, the dance, the prom, you stay with the girl that you brought to the dance? Or you don't switch boats midstream? Or however you, whatever type of metaphor you want to use, that's the idea that Paul is conveying. That if you were brought to salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, you don't all of a sudden go back to the, Mosaic law in order to be sanctified. Why? Because we learned the best that the law of Moses can do is incite your sin nature. Not that the law is the problem. The problem is your sin nature, but your sin nature doesn't mix with the law of Moses. It's like oil and water. So don't go back to that which brought you to greater sin. You're going to remain with the new covenant and the spirit. That's the idea. Don't go back to what were the Judaizers telling other people to do in Galatia they were trying to bring them back to circumcision right now why wouldn't that help anyone because being bound to the mosaic laws a legal binding code does not transform it brings bondage a bondage that you and I can't lift ourselves out of okay now let's look at another passage that I think proves the law of Moses should not be used for transformation And again, what I mean by that, the law of Moses is a binding legal code. Turn to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 12. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 12. This is a passage I had shared a couple of weeks ago, I believe, in one of my sermons, in which, shockingly, Paul states in this text that the law is not for the righteous, the believer, but it's for the unrighteous. Very important text to be familiar with. First Timothy 1, 8 through 12. Paul says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Let's stop there for just a moment. What law is Paul referring to? There can be many options. Maybe it's the law of some, simply some legalist, a man-made law. Well, no, we know he's talking about the law of Moses because, remember, there were false teachers in Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor that we're trying to bring people back to certain observances of the law of Moses. So certainly Paul's referring to the law of Moses as a binding legal code. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Notice verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unrighteous and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. Now, let's stop there just for a moment in verse 9. Does everyone see where he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person? Who is a righteous person? Well, I don't think Paul all of a sudden becomes a works-based salvation man and says, well, someone who's perfect in all that they do. I think he implies a righteous person is a person who's trusted in Christ. That would be his definition of one who is righteous because we have none Remember, he says, Romans three ten through 11, there's none righteous, no, not one. That is apart from the gospel. So the righteous person is certainly the believer. The law of Moses is not for that person, but for what? For those who are unregenerate. And he's listing unregenerate sins, sins that typify the unregenerate. Keep going in verse 10. He says, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, stop there in verse 10. Notice, The ending he ends with in verse 10 is whatever's contrary to sound teaching. In the very next verse, you're going to be given the hint or the answer as to what is the standard for sound teaching. Notice verse 11. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Stop there. Notice verse 11. Notice the... Does everyone see the preposition in your version, according to? Does everyone see that? That preposition in the Greek is kata. And more than likely here, it's being used as a preposition of standard. In other words, what Paul is doing very astutely is he's showing you the standard for sound teaching, the end of verse 10, is in fact the gospel, or in other words, you could say the new covenant, that he has been entrusted with from God. So what is the standard according to the Apostle Paul who speaks authoritatively the very words of Jesus Christ? The sound standard for teaching is not the Mosaic law, but the new covenant. It's succinctly stated right there. So then why should we be beaten over the head by someone who says, hey, you have Jesus and you have the new covenant, but unless you go back to the old covenant, you're not really going to be sanctified. Well, that's not what Jesus Christ himself says to the Apostle Paul. And what we have to say is, as Paul did in Galatians 3.3, how is it that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? No, once we're with Christ in the new covenant, there's no going back to the Mosaic law. Yes, the law and the prophets will always function in Scripture, but as a binding legal code, we are forever free from that. Yes, Rich? Yeah, I find it interesting that it, it talks about the worst kinds of sins imaginable. Sodomy, kidnapping, lying, perjury. And there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So what I'm seeing yes. here is that you take all the worst sins, right? Yeah. And it's the same as bad doctrine. don't? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, from that verse is that if you're teaching bad doctrine, you might as well be a sodomite, right? I, I wouldn't make that, that connection. Um, I'm not you know, trying to explain away bad doctrine. Bad doctrine is certainly bad. But I don't think that that's the connection that Paul is making. What he's simply using all those bad sins for is to show you that which characterizes the unregenerate. Uh, Remember, Paul says, so were some of you, but you were washed in the blood of Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 6. He has a sin list. And he says, and so were some of you, right? So in our unregenerate state... This was true for all of us. We were all, not not that we're all murderers or homosexuals or those types of things, but the idea is that the sins of the flesh are present in the unregenerate. Now, that doesn't mean we as believers don't struggle with things. We do. But the idea is they have been forever washed away. And we are in the process of being transformed. Okay, so we are always in the camp of Christ, we are in Christ. And therefore, we are always seen not as the people who do those things. Even if you stumble and fall, uh, not fall in the sense of leaving the faith, but you stumble into sin. Okay, why? Because our sins have been removed past, present, and future. All right? So this list of sins is talking about what characterizes the unregenerate. Um, Let me give you an analogy from the great D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, how many have ever heard of him? He's a tremendous evangelical scholar, I remember he learned, I think he learned some of his uh, schooling or had some of his boyhood schooling in England. And I think his father may have been involved with um, maybe a bomber pilot B-17 in World War II. I'm not sure. But anyway, he was in England for a period of time. And he, he recalls a story where on his classroom wall it said, there is no gum chewing allowed in this room. And he thought to himself how ironic as he was reading that at the time he was chewing gum. And so how incongruous you have the sign that says there is no chewing gum in this room, and yet here he's chewing gum. But what he does is he relates that to how you and I under the new covenant sometimes sin, even though sin is not allowed. And so the point is with that sign... It shows that gum chewing is not to be tolerated in that class, and it won't be. And sure enough, the teacher found him and said, you've got to spit that out. In the same way, those under the new covenant, we will want to turn from our sin, we will be convicted, and we will get rid of it. And sometimes it gets so bad, people have to be brought under church discipline. That's the whole purpose of church discipline is restoration. But most times, believers are willing to say, you know what, That's sin, I've got to turn from that i got to get out of the mud puddle. So think of another analogy. Is you're on the road to heaven, and you fall into a mud puddle of sin. You as a believer can't stand it. You go, I can't remain in this mud puddle. I'm getting out of here. And you repent, and you get out of the mud puddle, and you keep going towards heaven. The unregenerate falls in the mud puddle of sin, and they say, I like this. They pitch a tent. They roll around. They bathe, and they think, and it might have added addition here in this mud puddle. And they stay there, and there's no concern about going on to heaven. That's the difference between us as believers and the unbeliever. So that's why Paul can confidently say of these things, this is what characterizes the unregenerate alone. Yes, Luanne in the back, and we'll get you a a microphone.
1: So I'm just trying to think this through, you know, in a contemporary setting, but um, like Paul called the Galatians, you know, his brothers and sisters, but, you know, chastised them for being bewitched. Yes. And so when we look at, um, you know, who we share this building with. Yes. This would be like a mission opportunity.
0: Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Um You're right, Luann. The issue is they want to remain kosher and to keep the food laws, although Christ has said, and we see this in Mark chapter 7, that he has declared all foods clean. So the issue is whose lordship are you under? Now, certainly people are free to eat any type of food or not eat any type of food, and they are not bound one way or the other. The problem lies in when they make either false claims to themselves or to others, that unless you do this, you keep this food law, you are not right with God, you are not being transformed or sanctified, and therefore you are in a sinful condition before God. Now, they can make that claim to themselves and be their own false lawgivers, or they can do that to others. So again, there's freedom to partake of certain foods and not, that's great, but as soon as you make the claim, this makes me more right with God, more holy, or more sanctified, that's the problem. And so, freedom, yes, but not to the point of where you become a, a lawgiver. The only lawgiver under the new covenant is Jesus Christ, as revealed through the new covenant words of the apostles and prophets. Yes, Joy.
1: This is really helpful to me. I was looking at, and um, oh, I'm not on the right page. Um, well, in King James, it says, we know that the law is good, of, um, the law is not enacted for a righteous person. In the expanded it says, the law is not enacted for a law-abiding person, which kind okay. of makes it a little more, because when you think of a righteous person, you think of somebody that has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Exactly. And that's not, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's just talking about people who obey the law. You know, it's not, a, it's not for them. Amen. It's for the ones who, and, it, and then he also says, in, in response to what Louie just said, it is good if a person uses it properly.
0: Yes. It's our
1: relationship to the law that's important. It's not what the law says itself. It's what our relationship to the law is, how we appropriate it to have some kind of power in our lives to change us, which is wrong.
0: Right. Well said. And the role of it is forevermore, you and I, as it says in Romans 3.20, we say we have the knowledge of sin through the law. The law killed me just as it killed Paul. I realize I can't do that. Exactly. So you're right. It's forever bearing on us in that way, that it's a constant reminder that we couldn't do it. If the Jews couldn't, with the patriarchs, the covenants, and the promises, I'm not going to be able to do it. Therefore, I need Christ. So yes, you're absolutely right. Um, Steve, do you have the Greek New Testament in front of you? Okay. um, I'm just guessing that that law-abiding term for the King James Version, I think the term is decusinate or Uh, The the term is probably for righteousness, I'm guessing. Um, I wonder if I could, I don't, I'd have to shut everything down and pull up my logo so I can look at it. But I'm almost positive that the term for righteousness is a term for righteousness that's normally translated that way. Yeah, um, I don't think it's really for law-abiding. I don't think it would say nomos poieo, the one who does the law or something. So anyway, I think that the King James would be a little bit aberrant in that rendering. I think the NASB would probably be tighter there or the other modern version. So, yeah, a very good question, though. Well, let's come to number five, and this number five, oh, I'm sorry, Ron, I missed you there. Would it be proper to say the proper use of the law is to remind people, if you feel like you're under the law or you need to keep the law, you need to keep it all now, every very last good. bit of it. Excellent. You're absolutely right. That's one of Paul's points in the book of Galatians. Can you keep the whole law? Nope. Well, then don't, see, don't think that you can be justified just by keeping circumcision. If you enter into the Mosaic Covenant as a construct for righteousness, you have to keep the entire thing, and no one can. And that's been proven over and over and over. So we don't have to go back there. Um, remember in Romans 5, Adam was our first representative, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Okay, so that's called federal headship. So Adam is our first representative. He sins in the garden, and that sin... And that sin nature is imputed to me. It's credited to my account. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound fair that I didn't sin, and yet Adam's sin is credited to my account. But praise be to God that God works by imputation because at the end of the day, I end up sinning anyway. I end up becoming like Adam in thought, word, and deed. But praise be to God that he uses imputation because Christ's righteousness can be credited or imputed to my account. And so the reason I mention that is you look at Adam as a representative, but in a real sense, Israel is as well. Again, Israel is this representative for the entire world. They are to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 42, Isaiah chapter 49. But they fail. And that failure is instructive for every person, Gentiles included. So much so that in Romans 3.19, it says that it shuts the mouth of every man so it's a very astute question and a uh, point and yeah i think that that's our problem is we have to see israel and this hasn't been taught i don't think well in evangelicalism, is that israel in a sense is a representative as well and they failed under the law we're not going to fare any better as gentiles so let's give that up <laughs> that's been done and tried and it, it was a, a grand failure so amen well said yes yes linda we get the microphone to you
1: Do you suppose that wasn't taught very well because of replacement theology?
0: Some of that, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about what replacement theology is. Replacement theology is where Israel has been replaced by the church. And part of the problem there is it has come, by and large, from reform theologians who see something called a covenant of grace. Let me explain what that is. I'll be talking about that, by the way, today in our, our message. I found out today, by the way, Thursday evening, that Bob was too ill to go. So I had to come up with a message, and I didn't want to... I want to spend time when I'm doing the exegetical verse by verse. So I brought um, a baptism message that I've done before because we're going to have a baptism when I come back. But in this baptism message, I'm glad you brought this up, Linda, because it's something I'd like to spend a little time on. Inherent to the covenant theologians' understanding of how God works is they see a covenant of grace. And if I were to draw this, think of you have... I want to go from... Left or right for you, so the audience. So, think of the Mosaic covenant, and then you have the new covenant that comes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. Well, what my claim is, is that when the new covenant came, it abrogated in in total the entire Mosaic covenant, so it was repudiated and and done away with. So says the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews eight thirteen, that the new has made the old obsolete. Okay, and whatever is obsolete, he says, is ready to pass away. So that's my understanding. The covenant theologian has a different conception. Their conception is they come up with something called a covenant of grace. So think between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. If I were to draw this, I would draw a circle that connects both of them, and I would label it on a PowerPoint the covenant of grace. And so, what the Reformed theologian would say to you and to me, is that, Eric, don't you know that God was graciously working in the Mosaic Covenant, to which I would say, amen, certainly he was. Well, therefore, there was grace in the Mosaic Covenant and there's grace in the New Covenant. And under that rubric of the Covenant of Grace, they see, therefore, a relationship, for example, between circumcision for babies in the Old Covenant and baptism for babies in the New Covenant. Okay, now what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is they're confusing a major issue. And that is, under the Old Covenant, you could have a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers. In other words, let's take uh, Jim. Jim is an Israelite. He lives in 1302 B.C. He is under the law of Moses, but he never believes in Yahweh, not one bit. But he's still bound to the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because the Mosaic Covenant is in a theocracy. A nation that has a covenant with God. Israel is the only nation that ever had a covenant, but if you get rid of Israel and you replace it with the church, now all of a sudden we're still, we're all in the same position. So here's the point the only way you can enter into the new covenant is by being born again. But you can be a Jew born once and become a partaker of the Mosaic covenant. So, yes, born once into this world, you can be part of the Mosaic covenant as an Israelite. But you have to be born again to become a partaker of the New Covenant. So there is not a one-to-one relationship. And so that replacement idea has led to all sorts of troubles. That's why they think that the Mosaic Law does more than it does, because it's part of that rubric of the Covenant of Grace. No, what I would say is we have to jettison that thinking and say, no, the entirety of the Mosaic Law has been jettisoned. That's why Paul could say in Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1:19. But even though he's not under the law of Moses, he's under the law of Christ. Does that make sense? So the whole of the Mosaic law is to be jettisoned. That's the major error that I think the Reformed theologians have made. And one of the reasons why people want to go back to the law. So I hope that helps answer that question and a little bit of what covenant theology is. And by the way, I have great affinity towards some covenant theologians like R.C. Sproul. I learned a lot from him. I love R.C., but I disagree with them on many points. Yes.
1: Uh, That's the question I was going to ask. I was going to say, are we reformed? And there's teachers that I benefit greatly from that use the term covenant of grace. Yes, I don't need to just put up a red flag and run away just because they say that. Because I know from teaching that I've listened to for a long period of time, they're not talking about that circular thing that you were talking about. But they use the terminology covenant of grace. Yes. So it doesn't necessarily always mean replacement theology.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. So um, one of my favorite th- teachers has been R.C. Sproul for many years, yeah, I, and I love him dearly too. And I would agree with him on the doctrines of election and the major points of the gospel. Where we would disagree would be points like baptism, and the Lord's Supper and eschatology primarily. So, again, what we have to do is just go to the Scriptures and say the Scriptures are the final authority. And where we can be helped by someone of a different denomination or persuasion, we say, yes, that's, amen, that lines up with Scripture. Or we say, no, that's not quite right. Um, think about it, in the Reformed tradition, they break the law into three parts, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral. Well, where do we see that broken down in the Scriptures that way? Well, you don't. And so when Christ came to fulfill the law, he fulfilled the entire thing. When Paul says he is the end of the law, it's not just the end of one part of it in Romans 10, 4. He is the termination of its entirety. Now, does that mean we're lawless? No, we're under the law of Christ. We're forevermore under what he has revealed in the new covenant as his law. So we're not lawless. We're not antinomians. I'm sorry, anybody else on that? Thank you for the great comments and questions, by the way, everyone. Very good discussion. Okay. Well, let's move on to number five. And number five, I think we'll find some very good application for all of this. I want you to think of a greater to lesser here. If the Mosaic law, the greater, can't sanctify or transform, what about man-made laws? So I want you to think about this. This is something that has been a bee in my bonnet for many years. You'll always come across some legalist in your day who will try to bind you to a man-made law. So, again, it's okay for them to say, hey, personally, I don't like to watch, for example, football on Sunday, and therefore I stay away from the commercials that entice me to spend or whatever it is. Well, that's fine. That's great. But as soon as they make the claim, in order to be right with God, I must not watch football on Sunday, or you must not, all of a sudden they become a lawgiver even beyond Moses. Let's ask ourselves, did Moses ever say, thou shall not watch football on Sunday? Well, no. No. Therefore, it's a lesser law. If the greater law of Moses that God once had ordained is not binding, how much less is some made-up man-made law not binding? We've had specific examples in this church where I remember there was a man who demanded that women were not able to pass out the communion elements. Now, we know from 1 Timothy that, yes, women are prohibited, from exercising the role of authority and teacher in the church, that is, as an elder. But where under the new covenant does it say they cannot pass out the communion elements? Well, it doesn't. So what happens is, inevitably, a man like that will gain a following because he seems more pious. He's more strict than even the scriptures. And therefore, people say, wow, this guy really takes righteousness seriously. But in reality, he's usurping Jesus Christ as the lawgiver of the church by binding people to what they had never been bound by. It's one thing to bind someone to something that the people of God were once bound to, the Mosaic law. It's a holy other sin, which is far greater to bind people to what they've never been bound to. So that's the root of legalism. And I want to show you some passages that you can turn to if you come across a legalist that starts to beat you over the head by saying, hey, you can't do that on this day, and it's not in the Scriptures. Let me show you some passages that you can use to refute legalism. Again, man-made law-giving. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. Let's look at Mark 7, 5 through 9. And again, some of you probably have this memorized, or at least know what's in it. But remember in Mark chapter 7, again, the Pharisees are angry because Jesus' disciples... They are eating food without washing their hands first. Now, let's remember under the old covenant that they were bound to, where were they prohibited from eating without washing their hands? They were not. So these guys were the legalists just making things up whole cloth. And it, it, it's as if Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, he's saying, Who made you the lawgiver, right? Notice Mark 7, verses 5 through 9, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that's asking Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands? Stop there. There is not one scripture under the Mosaic Covenant that requires the common folk to wash their hands prior to eating. Not one. So it's the tradition of the elders, but it's not scripture. So notice how Jesus responds, verse 6. It says, and he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hy- hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Stop there. What does it mean in Isaiah where the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me? Do you remember when the Israelites would worship Baal, and they would worship Moloch, and they'd worship all these false gods, but then, of course, they would bring their sacrifice animal to the temple and say, God, you have to accept that. Do you remember that God lashes out against such an idea in Isaiah chapter 1? He says, who is it that requires this trampling of my courts and your sacrifices? In other words, if I were to paraphrase what God is saying in Isaiah 1, is he's saying to the Israelites, take your sacrifices and stick them in your ear. Because you, have not, you want nothing to do with me from the heart. You want some other God, but you think you're going to appease me maybe once a week or once a month by sticking an, an offering in the offering plate. Nuts to you, he's saying. No, I want faith from the heart and obedience. That's what God is saying. And so that's why Jesus is citing this. These men love their rules, but they didn't love God and his word. That's the irony. And that is the case with the legalist. You will find that when you preach the gospel to the legalist, they'll tilt their nose and say, well, big whoop. Hey, um, after all, I don't eat certain foods, and I don't go to watch football, and I don't do this, and my wife doesn't do that, and I don't let my kids do And it's just a bunch of rules outside of the scriptures. And they scoff at the, at the gospel. They are the same people who honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from them. Notice he says in verse 8, Mark 7, 8, he says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts of setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. Wow. They love their own tradition, but they didn't love God's word. That's the problem with legalism. Brothers and sisters, we are not bound to any man other than Jesus Christ in the covenant. And if some brother or sister comes to us and says, hey, you know, following Matthew 18, I see sin in your life. And they bring it up to you and you see that, yes, in scripture that is sinful. You should repent. But if they bring to you something that you are not bound to under the new covenant and say, you know what? You have to do this in order to be right with God or to be sanctified. There's where you take your stand and say, I'm not bound by that. There's only one lawgiver under the New Covenant, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you what legalism leads to, and let's ask ourselves, can legalism ever bring about righteousness in the life of a believer? In other words, going outside of the terms of the New Covenant, taking the laws of men and saying, yeah, I'm going to use that to become a better person, more righteous, a better Christian, etc. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, Verses 20 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Please turn your Bibles there. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Now remember, this is a part in Colossians where Paul has just argued the supremacy of Christ. That in him we have all we need. That's what he has just labored prior. But now he's going to address those who are trying to bring the people away from the sufficiency of Christ into a form of legalism, really. Notice verse 20. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Now, stop there for just a moment. Does everyone see, more than likely in your version, I have the New American Standard Bible, but in verse 20, does your version say elementary principles? He says, if you have died to the elementary principles... Is that what yours says, Joy?
1: Rudimentary
0: things. Rudimentary things. There's different ways of translating. What they're trying to translate is the term in Greek, stoichia. Now, the term, the term stoichia is actually the demonic realm. That's what he's referring to. So, listen to this. Let's read this again and put that in there. If you have died with Christ to the demonic realm, why is if you are living in the world which the demonic realm runs... Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not taste, do not touch, do not handle? In other words, what, what Paul is saying under the authority of Jesus Christ is that the man-made laws, you can't eat that, you can't touch that, you can't do that, the legalism, the ultimate root of that is it's a doctrine of demons. Wow. The demons stand behind it. When the man said to us in our church a Gospel of Grace, women cannot pass out elements, there were demons behind that doctrine wow. because he was usurping... Jesus Christ as the lawgiver of the church. That's why it ought not to be tolerated. How bad is legalism? It's demonic from the pit of hell. Preach it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, amen. I'm just telling you what the text says. So what's shocking, by the way, let me give you a little insight as to why we know so much about Colossians today. In the 90s, 1992, I believe, there was some scholarship, some men who went to the area of Asia Minor, and they discovered through inscriptions some of the meanings behind these terms in the book of Colossians. Um, one of them, his name is Arnold, his last name. Um, I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, Clinton. Did someone say that? Yes, Clinton Arnold. Thank you, Luann. Um, Clinton Arnold is his name, and he has a book called The Colossian Heresy, and he talks about this. So, how do we know that this term, elementary principles or rudimentary things, the Stoichia, is in fact the demonic realm? Because later scholarship, even in the 1990s, has shown us that that is indeed the case. So what was going on at Colossae is you had a bunch of Jews who had left the area of Israel. Why? Because they were dispersed at the Babylonian captivity. After the Babylonian captivity is over, they start going back to Israel, but some of them don't. Some of them settle in places like Colossae. And in Colossae, they started believing that, yes, they began with Christ, but they bought into some of the Persian myths. Like, for example, some of the Persian soothsayers would say that there were demonic beings who, who would control 360 degrees of the zodiac. And so the idea, then, is you had to appeal to angels to have protection from the demons. So they would have to wear amulets, and they would have to wear this, and they'd have to do that, all to have protection from the demonic realm. If you wanted your child to grow up being healthy, you had to appease the demonic realm through the angels. So the whole book of Colossians is Paul establishing that Christ has the ultimate authority. Who created all things? Christ. Who is the one who sustains all things? Christ. Who is the one who nailed to the cross the decree against us? Christ. We have all we need in him. That's the idea. We don't need these rules and these things. Yes, Scott? Sounds like the cosmic protection racket. It's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. So the demons, think of this. He's exactly right. Think of this. That's so good. I was going to mention that, by the way. Very good. Cosmic protection racket. The demons say you need to be protected from us. But the the message doesn't come directly from a demon. It comes from some false teacher. So the false teacher says, you need protection from the demons. Therefore, you need these angels, and you need amulets, and you need all this hocus-pocus stuff to protect you from the demons. All the while, it's a doctrine of demons. That's where it comes from. They want you to leave Christ alone. That's the whole point. So, yes? Yeah, I'm sorry. Joy's all fired up. Good. I'm glad.
1: (laughs) And actually, when you adhere to those things, you're actually opening a door for more exact demonic it's, influences.
0: It's never enough, is it? And they'll always keep you under their thumb. Well, let's keep reading Colossians 2 and let's see where this leads. Notice here, after the do not taste, do not have, you can't do this, you can't do that, things that aren't revealed in the New Covenant, they all come from the demons, from these false teachers. Notice in verse 22, Paul says, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance, I believe the... The term there would be similar to our preposition, according to, akada. but in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So stop there. In other words, the authority behind these things aren't God, it's men. But notice he says, the ultimate purpose, by the way, or the ultimate source was the demons up in verse 20. So the demons and the men are bringing this teaching, not God. Notice verse 23, he says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. Notice it's not revealed by God. They have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can beat yourself, you can limit yourself according to these false teachers, but it will never bring holiness in your life. Think about the Catholic who chains himself to marble. So, The marble saps the body heat from his body. Is that going to make him more righteous? No. Remember the desert fathers that they're called. I hate that term because they're not fathers of anything. But the monks would go out into the wilderness thinking that if they just get away, they're going to become holy. What's the problem with that? Well, they weren't commanded to go to the wilderness by Christ. They're commanded to go to church. Do not forsake the assembling as some are prone to do. That's where they're to go. But they go to the wilderness and the problem is they say, well, Jesus did that. Yeah, when Jesus went to the wilderness, he didn't have a sin nature, but you do. When you go to the wilderness, you bring the sin nature. Jesus went in there, he brought his holy perfection. No, Jesus did that, but you're not to. Jesus also died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Am I to do that for someone else? No, it won't do him a lick of good. There are things that Christ does that we are not called to. Brothers and sisters, forevermore, let's remember that Jesus Christ is the lawgiver of the new covenant. And if we have terms under the new covenant, yes, you and I are bound by them, but if some false teacher says to you, you have to do this or you have to do that, and it's not found in the terms of the new covenant, you are not bound to that. And you know that the ultimate root of that doctrine is it's a doctrine of demons. When they say you must do this or that in order to be right with God. Yeah, remember that movement about 20 years ago, What Would Jesus Do? Does that fall underneath us? Right. That was, um, and I know very well-meaning people, people I believe who are really believers who are into that, but there's a a confusion there because it's not what would Jesus do. Um, That's certainly the gospel. We want to focus on what he did, but what they're really getting at is what would Jesus have me do? When Jesus walks on water, does that mean that I have to? No. When Jesus died as a substitution atonement, does that mean that I do? No. When Jesus went to the wilderness to be the faithful son Israel never was, they failed in 40 years, he succeeds in 40 days. He the, well, am I supposed to go to the wilderness? No. So there's lots of things that Christ did on my behalf that I'm not to do. And so we always focus on the person and work of Christ, what he did, and in light of that, under the new covenant, what am I to do? Brothers and sisters, you and I are to never go back to the old covenant and if we're not to ever go back to the old covenant for transformation, of course, for justification, then how much more should we never go back or go to laws that come from men that God had never ordained? That's what I want to leave you with here today. That's the, the significance of understanding that you forevermore are under the new covenant in the lordship of Jesus Christ. So with that, I think we're out of time. But I will I will conclude with prayer here. And uh, thank you, by the way. I love this conversation and the discussion that we have. What a, what a fun time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new covenant and the freedom and the light burden that Christ came to bring to release us from our sins. We thank you for the new covenant and the terms that are designed for our holiness. We pray as a people that we would be bound to that, but not the, to be bound to the words of mere men or that of other religions. We pray all the days of our lives, Lord, that you would help us to persevere under the new covenant for that great day that you break through the clouds for us and bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.